0: Welcome to the Triple Latte Leadership Life Hack podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Listen as we explore the timeless attributes that encompass effective leadership. Attributes that will help you supercharge your success at home, work, and play. Are you ready to be the leader we know you can be? Of course you are. Today we will discuss the leadership life hack that will help you get there. So now, Please join our host and curator of leadership and strategy, Joseph DeMaros.
1: Rebecca and Keith Scott from Tall Small Productions. Welcome. Thank you so much for making the time. You know, I'm a big fan. I've seen you on ABC, NBC, Maryland Public Television, CBS. You're out there really speaking and helping people to build skills relative to effective communication. How did you all get started in this?
2: You'll laugh when we tell you we randomly met on LinkedIn and I invited Keith for coffee. He'll tell you I was looking for a date, but it was coffee.
1: You sure?
3: You sure <laughs> well, it was coffee? I'm sure.
2: <laughs> and we instantly connected from there.
3: What Rebecca's not telling you, though, is when we first met, she had this game called <laughs> Mind Games and I had to communicate the same pics that she did or else I wouldn't get that next chance to meet her.
1: You know, that's amazing. So my Rebecca and I have a very similar story. I wanted to invite her for coffee and she's like, you know, I'm traveling around the country and I'm running all these meetings and maybe we should do dinner. And the rest, as they say, is history. Tell everybody in the audience how you came up with tall, small productions.
2: I wish we had a big story behind it. But what happened was Keith and I were doing our first workshop together. We both have communications backgrounds. And the client asked us for a company name. We didn't have one.
3: We didn't want to be one of those Scott and Klein LLCs. We thought it was kind of boring. And I thought, well, I'm tall and Rebecca's kind of small. So why don't we just combine it and people will remember us when we walk in a room. We thought, oh, that's a good name. Our parents thought we were nuts. They said, man, that name is never going to fly out there. And we've kept it ever since.
2: And it turned out. Oh, but out, it stuck. It's it <laughs> yeah. stuck. And my maiden name Klein means small in German. And then there's right. the whole idea of I was always supposed to be tall. Thought I would be tall, and it all ended at five two. And that's wow. how people recognize us when we walk in six foot nine, five two. Hard to hide.
1: What was your training for each of you in communications that led to you following this passion to start this enterprise?
3: My background is in lobbying and working with the Baltimore County Chamber of Commerce. I was used to negotiating, dealing with legislative issues, but also finding ways to bring consensus and to work on that ever needed art of persuasion.
2: And persuasion was equally important in my role as a TV reporter and producer, where you had to very quickly get people to open up and talk in time to have your story put together for that day's show. And from there, I helped companies launch marketing plans and was a company spokesperson. And when we came together, we found we had the exact same approach to communication.
1: Wow. Yeah, that resonates with me. So let me ask you a question. You all are the experts. Can effective communication at the highest level, can it really be learned?
3: Absolutely. Everybody can learn communication, whether that's from the verbal or utilizing body language. All they have to do is get into their authentic self.
2: And it's more about stripping away from the communication than adding to it. A lot of people lose their messaging because their words are surrounded by fluff of filler words and weak phrases. And when you pull all of that away, the clear communication emerges. And Keith and I love working with people who think they need to spend days and days and days with us when in an hour and a half, we solve a lot of problems.
1: Right. So what would you say is the number one thing that people should know about effective
3: communication. That you're gonna get judged whenever you walk out in public, whenever you leave your house and you're walking down the street or you walk into a meeting or a conference, people are looking at you, they're judging you, and they're making assumptions about you. And as soon as you understand that, then you're comfortable, but you have to understand that everyone is judging you at all times and embrace that judgment.
2: And you have to get to the point where you don't care what that judgment is, and you go with what you know is right.
3: It's powerful.
1: So Keith, let's say that you're in a really, you know, let's look at your role as a leader in the Baltimore Chamber of Commerce. Let's say that you're off put by a greeting at an important meeting, as an example. You're in the meeting, Mm -hmm. you were prepared for the meeting, you had your must air points, you reflected on what you wanted out of the meeting. You looked at the other participants with whom you were going to meet prior to the meeting and sort of looked at their communication style and tried to figure out what success would be for them in that meeting. You have prepared to the point that you are confident about this interaction and you go into the meeting and something incredibly off-putting happens in your initial exchange with one of the other meeting participants. How do you handle
3: that? Well, first of all, I, I would never be that prepared. <laughs> I'll tell you that, I'll just be authentic and real. I'm like, man, that's a lot of preparation. But the second thing is you gotta always be ready to pivot because nothing goes as planned in life, right? Life is a bunch of gray areas all the time. And so at any time something can drop, something can change, your audience can change, someone can turn on you, Do you have to be ready to pivot like in a game at all times. And then the second thing is, many times people then clam up. Someone says something to you you're like, oh, I wasn't prepared, what do I do? You have to learn how to have fun with it and throw it back at them and have fun and laugh at it. Many times people are afraid of confrontation, but confrontation is friction and that makes things move forward. Rebecca, what would you add to that?
2: that the key, as Keith said, is to not overprepare and go with your gut instinct. And in any situation, it's when we overprepare that we fall into the trap of simultaneously talking to ourselves, and then we're not fully engaged with the other person. If you're focused on making key points, for example, you're constantly beating yourself up if you miss one. But if instead you come up with a few key bullets of what it is you want to convey, then you won't be as likely to fall off course and get stuck.
1: Right, I think it was Stephen Covey who said,
3: Listen with the intent to understand, not the intent to reply.
2: Absolutely. There
3: you go. There you go. And, that, and that's the key. And we work with a lot of companies in their board meetings, staff meetings, where people are just sitting on the edge of their seat, ready to reply, but they are not comprehending. And that's why the meetings go on and on.
2: The meetings go double in length because we'll find a lot of people will say the exact same thing right on top of each other, because nobody is tuned in to everybody else. And we play a game with people that opens their eyes and ears up to this, where we'll line up eight people and we'll ask them to close their eyes and their job is to count to 20, but they can't go in order or in a pattern. And it's all about effective listening and paying attention to each other's rhythms. And some groups can get this right away and other groups, it's like shoots and ladders, they can't get past three or four.
1: Is there A common observation
3: on why some groups excel at this versus others don't? They don't have an understanding of the natural rhythm, the body language, pacing, timing. They're really, it's like on edge. It's like they drank a couple of Red Bulls (laughs) and their energy levels on the edge. They can't listen well and interpret people's personalities and you can kind of feel who in the room is going to go first and who's going to lay back a little bit. They don't have that situational awareness.
2: Yesterday we were working with PayPal for the first time and this was a cohesive bonded group. They knew how to laugh together. They were supportive and encouraging of each other all through the session. And when we got to this game, something happened that has never happened before. They made it to 20 because they get each other
1: they understand it they had that dynamic and keith you introduced something there that i think i really want to explicitly call out because you talked about members of the group in that exercising identifying key features in nonverbal communication i mean when i was sort of sitting here and actively listening what you were sharing i heard a lot of more reference many many more reference points to nonverbal communication than I did verbal communication.
3: It's 70% of all communication, and most people do not pick up on this when they walk into a room to quickly size up everything going on in that room, the manner in which people are holding their bodies, how they're sitting, the clothing that they're wearing, the place where they decide to stay in the room, There's a million different situational things that you have to be able to pick up on quickly and that we teach people how to do so that you can make judgments on how people are going to communicate. You know, guys,
1: I've been blessed in my career to work in the private sector, the nonprofit sector and in government. And one of the things that I've observed across all of those sectors is this tension that leaders have between mindfulness and action. First of all, do you come across that amongst leaders? And then what's the communication implication of this tension between mindfulness on the one hand and taking action on the other? Can you
2: share an example with us?
1: I think it's a great example. So I had the great fortune of working with AARP during a time when we fought to get a drug benefit in Medicare in 2002 and 2003. And we had a community of leaders, a committee that was established um, that was called a council. I won't get into the name but and who was on it. I, I will say that it met weekly and it included the CEO, COO, and key leaders of what at the time was a billion dollar non-profit entity with an extraordinary brand aarp and one of the observations of the group was and the people in the group realized it is that these were all highly successful leaders male and female leaders of various ages and they just wanted to fix stuff you know so the whole point of this console was to keep discussion decision making. At a strategic level. And one of the sort of reoccurring tensions was to have that conversation and have that communication get to the tactical level. In the end, these were not the leaders that were charged with tactically bringing this advocacy fight on the ground. Uh, These were the folks that were charged with dealing with the really important policy features, the strategic decisions, but they just got so caught up sometimes. In taking action, we just got so caught up in times taking action that we weren't sort of mindful of our focus, that we were there to be strategic thinkers. So that would be an example. We
2: see that happen a lot where people, instead of brainstorming and collaborating and coming together, they go immediately to that outcome. And sometimes right. they forget to pay attention to the more quiet people at the table who don't jump right in with the action, the thinkers. And the key is to be mindful of everybody you have at the table and not always to pounce in with your ideas and to recognize that oftentimes the best solution is a combination of three or four ideas and not any and one single one that people came into the room with.
3: Yeah, that resonates. I like to imagine in my mind a small southern town where the pace of life is a little slower, and when sitting around to make a decision, we train people take some time, let it digest in your mind, think about all the outcomes, how it's going to play out before you take action. But to slow things down a little bit, we need that time in our brains to process because our initial idea of something is not always the final one. You know, we think of painting or building something. We get one idea, but then when we buy the supplies, we're like, wait a minute, that's not gonna work. We need to do it this way. So taking that time to digest and allow ideas to percolate is something that saves time in the long run.
2: And when you begin to pay a lot of attention to body language, you can see this common need in people. If you see someone, for example, rubbing their chin, that means that they are lowering their heart rate. They may not know they need to do that yet. It's an instinctual thing, but when someone's doing that or rubbing their collarbone or playing with a necklace or their hair, they need things to slow down because they're hesitating about something. And the most incredible opportunity you can take is to acknowledge that and either pause and give that person a moment to think or ask directly, can I clarify something? But too often, people bulldoze right on to the next agenda item.
1: Yeah, I know. That's something that really I learned when I worked for Governor Waihe'e in Hawaii. It's something that I've tried to apply in my professional practice. You know, it's helpful in my personal life as well. I'm less successful, I think, in my personal (laughs) life applying that. But this notion of everything we have in life has a Mm -hmm. pause button. You know, so we must have had a concept of the value of pause to create our machines with you
3: pause think buttons, about early, right? Think early no, days no, in tribal life. Tribes would come together around a circle. They would pass a talking stick. Each person would have a chance to vocalize. But silence was a key part of that decision making. Just. Being in the silence allows the brain to unfilter and relax. But we've moved to an area where our social media, everything is hurry, hurry, hurry. We have apps so we can run in and get what we need before we have a chance to even think do we need it. We need to have that time to slow down and process to make proper decisions.
2: And the same happens with emails and text messages. All too often, people respond immediately. Without taking a moment to absorb. And then it takes far longer to undo the harsh words or the abrupt phrases we often use when we're feeling emotional and frustrated. In fact, this works with raising kids too. When our kids get incredibly upset about something, we'll often have them go take a walk around the block or take a few moments and then come back and have the talk. And it's always a far more productive talk that way.
1: Yeah, I think it's powerful. I think it was President Lincoln who had the practice of. When he was very, very upset about something, he would write a letter and express in the moment how upset and his frustration about the specific situation at hand. And then he'd put the letter in his desk and decide later whether he should send it. And, you know, it's obviously informed the thinking of people like Colin Powell and others who, in their leadership advice, say, you know, it's really bad today. Tomorrow will be better. You know, write the email, put it in your draft. Don't send it now you know, maybe look at it tomorrow the next day if it wasn't really, really essential in terms of timeliness
3: and see if you still want to send it and say it mm-hmm. that way. I also think that people don't do this enough is listening to that inner spirit that you have. You, you know, people call it many different things, but if your gut says this is the right or wrong thing to say or do, listen to that because there's always, we're believers, that there's a voice telling you You should go ahead, you should sit back a little bit, but listen to that voice. And it will really guide you in many ways to make the proper decisions. Are there some specific tools that, three or four tools
1: that you give to your clients during your seminars, whether it's for their personal life or their professional life, just a, a core set of three or four rules and do these action steps and you will profoundly see the difference in your communication, how effective it is, how you feel about it. Yes,
2: number one is to have situational awareness. When you walk into a room, know that people are looking at you, you're looking at them and never have your blinders on. Keep watch for people's body language and react to it rather than going on with what you intended to do.
3: Another rule would be whatever you go to discuss or tell other people about or in a presentation, make it so that fourth graders can understand what you're talking about, and make it folksy, relatable, and understandable. Never make something more complicated than it needs to be. There's no reason to make things more complicated.
2: And think of any presentation you're making as a Super Bowl commercial where hundreds of thousands of dollars ride on every single word. And when you begin to look at things that way, you strip away a lot of the phrases that become exit ramps where people tune out of conversations. A lot of presentations, for example, start with, well, today I would like to start off by telling you about three key points. We'll go through this PowerPoint. And by the time the person makes the first point, everybody is already lost.
1: That's the journalist in you, Rebecca.
2: If it bleeds, it leads. But we we tone that down a little (laughs) for tall, small.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right, absolutely. So should presenters Use tools like PowerPoint routinely? Is that is that a price of entry? Is no. it a must? We is never, it a should? We is never a should? use
3: PowerPoint. We've lost contracts for mm-hmm. not doing PowerPoint. We don't believe you need a backup singer. <laughs> That's what PowerPoint is. That's a good line. Could I, can I use that
1: line Absolutely. if I can? Absolutely, because
2: nobody, nobody <laughs> has ever raced down a hallway, sprinted to the front of the room to get that front row seat for a PowerPoint.
1: Uh, no, hey, the moment right? that
2: screen comes on, people take out their phones, they go to everything else they need to do for the day.
1: Right. Would you all characterize yourself as leaders?
3: I certainly would characterize both of you as leaders. Would you characterize yourself would, as leaders? Because we feel leaders have that responsibility to give to others, to help others, to help bring other people up the ladder of life. And that's the role and blessing that we've had the opportunity to do.
2: Yes. We see it as a privilege of our role of helping other people to better themselves. And very often we learn from people in the process of that. It's something we don't take lightly. Uh,
1: I've certainly got some ideas on what the core business is of effective leaders. You know, what, if you sort of hung up the shingle, you know, uh, Rebecca and Keith Scott, effective leaders, The shingle would have a subtext on what that is. What do you think
3: the core business is of an effective leader?
2: Being authentic.
3: Helping people up the ladder. A true leader never pushes people down. A true leader is trying to push people up that ladder of achievement and help them develop what they want to develop without an ego, just help move people along.
2: And a true leader listens more than talks. And often people think of leaders as extroverts when some of the most powerful leaders out there are introverts?
1: You know, there's a great example of this. We just, uh, Rebecca, I gotta tell you, that leads into just something really powerful that most people don't understand about our history in the United States. Here's a really neat example of that that you all can use in some of your presentations. So we, uh, of course, have presidents of the United States and the constitution says that our presidents are required annually to make a State of the Union address before Congress. But the Constitution doesn't say how a president should do that. And so early in the presidency, our first one or two or three presidents made speeches. We got to President Jefferson, who was, of course, a noted and brilliant writer who most people don't realize had speech issues. He had a speech impediment. He was a brilliant, brilliant writer. And he was intellectually and philosophically a libertarian who really didn't believe in sort of the power of the monarchy. I mean, for him, the American Revolution was about the power and the liberty of the individual and an avoidance of the British monarch. So from Thomas Jefferson we did not have another state of the union address before congress a speech and in 1912 between that time the state of the union was delivered in writing and you know it's a powerful reminder that we have strengths and weaknesses in our communication and we have the ability to build those strengths and weaknesses but what's really important is to be authentic in how we approach those strengths those weaknesses and communicate
3: what's really in our heart? This, this goes back to a phrase we always think about in life when people say well what do you want to do or career advice we say find out what you're not good at and don't do it
2: <laughs> and then we add right
3: right and it then seems we add simple. think
2: about what you love doing most as a kid what did you like playing with and often The mystery is right there. The answer to that mystery is there. When people think about what they enjoyed most, they're able to work backward and think about what they want to do.
1: Rebecca, do you have an exercise that you guide people through in your trainings on that? We
2: have a couple of them. One is we have building blocks and you'd laugh at us if you saw us walking around with our humongous case of these little wooden blocks. We'll have people build their communication styles or we'll have them build what they were like as children and have them talk about it and as they're building something phenomenal happens because as you're building the walls with these blocks your own walls crumbling down and people will share more with each other and that's when the best ideas are formed
3: wow so keith do you see people's body language change as you people observe become this? less bureaucratic they get rid of that conventional what we call professional image, but the professional image has become something of being a stiff neck person. They become loose. And in doing that, other people relate to them better. It's amazing to watch their bodies come alive. It's like that toy, that old time toy where you push the bottom. It's like an animal and then it has strings in it and then it just lets loose. And then when you let go of it, it firms back up again. Yeah, no, I remember. Relax, just come into its own self.
2: It's incredible. You get a sense that the people are real all of a sudden. Before we do this exercise, people are often sitting there stiff, exactly how they think they're supposed to attend a session. They have their pen and paper out. They're ready to take notes. And then you give them these blocks and something happens. It's incredible. They're able to access a part of themselves they haven't in years.
1: I think Tony Robbins talks about, The get to mindset versus the got to mindset. You know, that sort of, oh, I got to go to this training. I've got my pad and I've got my pen, and I don't know, versus, wow, I got to do that. I got to work with blocks today. That was so cool, right? The difference between. Similar to the idea of
3: you wake up and you're like, man, I got to take the dog out, or I get to take the dog out. I'm lucky enough to have a dog and can afford to pay for the food that the dog eats.
2: Yes, you should remember that tonight.
3: And I got the time. I've got the time to take the dog out. It's remembering, it's not always easy to do. No, it's not. By
1: the way, Rebecca was like this morning, she's like, are you (laughs) gonna take the dog out? And there was a split second there where I was really not perfect. And I was like, really? It took me about, I gotta tell you Keith, it took me about two seconds where I got to my, got to versus get to moment, but I I did get to it. And it was in fact a blessing, which brings up to maybe my last couple of questions one of the things I teach in leadership, both at work and in the th- work that I do in the community, is to point out to people that I don't know any perfect people. So I don't, I don't know any perfect leaders. And so part of this experience of evolving as a communicator, evolving as a servant leader really requires embracing the fact that it is a learning experience and It's not good or bad. It's effective or ineffective. And mistakes are going to be made and they're meant to be learned from. And it's
2: about learning to laugh at those mistakes rather than to get pulled down into the dumps about them to recognize that in a day or two, you won't even remember that that mistake happened. Most of us are not out there doing brain surgery. And we see people get incredibly wound up in the minutia, in the weeds of the smallest things and helping them to learn and look past it and see it for what it is.
3: It's similar to watching the Olympics now, when you watch the tapes of people having a crash on their skis or on their bobsled. For a split second, you're right, they're frustrated, they're angry, but if they didn't have that, then they wouldn't know how to get faster because they'd say, well, what did I do wrong? And I'm not gonna do that again.
2: Exactly, because friction moves us forward. If we don't have friction, there's no movement.
1: Right, so embrace the failure, uh, own the grief, learn what you need to learn from it, Move exactly. forward, do better. Well, thank you. I'm learning from you. You guys must credible communications <laughs> teachers. What would you add that I didn't ask you about today on
3: our call? This is a typical reporter question, isn't it, Rebecca? Mm-hmm. We always <laughs> say that should be the last
2: question <laughs> in an great. interview because that's always the soundbite that gets most used. But you had such great questions.
1: Thank you. That's very <laughs> kind of you. Very, very, very kind of you. So, how can people reach out to you can small, put small, tall, first, small if productions? You like. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to ask you about that. I really was on why it why, why wasn't small, tall productions. But I figured, you
2: know, maybe uh, not go there has today. it a better but ring how, to it. It's a good rhythm.
1: It has, it does have a good rhythm, actually. So how can folks reach out to you and say, hey, I would love to work with you? You can visit us online
2: at tallsmallproductions.org. There's a contact us button. All you have to do is write down that website. And from there, you can visit us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and email us.
1: And you have offerings that include group sessions, keynote speeches. Again, I've seen you all on television a bunch. So the type of events you can do are wide ranging, right? Everything from, is it one-on-one to group work to keynote. Absolutely, is, we is do that it all.
3: Right? And many times the keynotes will lead to a group session. And then one of the things that we love to do with our group sessions is called on-demand, where once the group session's done, will come back in and meet with individuals for 30 minutes, 45 minutes individually and help them in a private session, figure out what's the next step for them without everybody else listening in. And we love that. And all three of these things work together. Well, you know, I cannot thank you enough for
1: making the time today for this discussion. I learned so much. Uh, I admire what you do. Um, my observation on what you offer in community, in what you do for your business, is you are making ceaseless deposits in the accounts of others that allow them to be their best selves. And I really appreciate it and learned so much today. So thank you so much for making the time. Thank, thank you, you very you much. We had you a for great time. Us.
2: It was an honor to be on your show.
1: That was awesome. Be well.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Triple Latte Leadership Life Hack Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. For more tools on achieving your goals as a leader, please visit Triple Latte Leadership on Facebook. Be sure to like our page so you can stay updated on our offerings. To contact Joe D'Amatos, please send an email to CEO at TripleLatteLeadership.com. Be well.